Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. As interesting as the reflections of modern cosmology might be, I myself accept another model out of which my culture came, the model of contingency, in which God holds creation in his hand, as you can see on any romantic or gothic apsis painting. Ivan Illich, historian, critic, pilgrim, and to many whom he has met on his way, a friend. He first came to wide public notice in the 60s as a critic of contemporary institutions. In books like Deschooling Society and Medical Nemesis, he pointed out how institutions, once they cross a certain threshold of size and intensity, turn from means into ends and frustrate the very purposes for which they were established. How schools, in other words, make people stupid and medicine makes them sick. He attacked the power of professions to define people's needs and the belief, as he once said, that man can do what God cannot, namely manipulate others for their own salvation. Today, at the age of 62, he is no longer the campaigner he once was, but his concerns have deepened rather than changed. Now, as a historian of the Middle Ages, he searches for the sources of our enslaving myths and uses history to sharpen the senses and undermine the certainties of his readers and students. I want those who are willing to study with me to engage in the exegesis of these old texts, to move into this foreign milieu, to move into the magic circle which is surrounded by the dead, who come for a moment alive as shadows. The reason why I leave them there is because I want them to re-emerge with me back into the present, to re-enter, not to abdicate, but to assume fully the destiny which places me into today at this desk, in this milieu, to be a visitor to that which has been and is no more and has disappeared forever in order to sharpen my eye for those few things which emerged and became that which I have to live with. Tonight we begin a five-part series called Part Moon, Part Travelling Salesman, Conversations with Ivan Illich. The title comes from a poem by Vincenti Widobro, which Illich likes to quote as an ironic motto for his own career. Je suis un peu lune et commis voyageur. I'm a bit moon and a bit traveling salesman. And my specialty is that of finding those hours that have lost their clock. There are hours which have drowned des heures qui se noient. And there are other hours which have been eaten up by cannibals. And I even know a bird which drinks them. And others have been made into commercial tones. But I 
am a bit moon and a bit traveling salesman and I look for those which have lost their clock. It is Illich's vocation as an historian to find those hours and his fate as a modern man to live in an age which makes even its poets and pilgrims into traveling salesmen, though still a little bit moon. Tonight on Ideas, we join him on his journey. Our series is written and presented by David Cayley. I first heard the name of Ivan Illich in 1968. I had then just completed a two-year stint with CUSO, the Canadian University Service Overseas, as a teacher in a Chinese school in North Borneo. The experience had perplexed and unsettled me, but I couldn't yet have said precisely why. Then I encountered a talk which Illich had given in Chicago to a group of aspiring American volunteers bound for Latin America, and everything more or less fell into place. The gist of Illich's message was, stay home, or if you must come, come in all humility as tourists with something to learn, rather than as developers and modernizers with something to teach. He explained in clear, bold terms what I had only dimly perceived, that mimicry of Western institutions would eventually prove futile and self-defeating for the countries of what one then still called the developing world. For me and the few others who had left CUSO with serious doubts and questions, Illich became a guide. Two years later, we were able to persuade him to come to Toronto to address a teach-in we had organized. He spoke about the environment. I do believe that the exhaustion and pollution of the Earth's resources is above all the result of a corruption in man's self-image, or in other words, of a regression in his consciousness, which leads us to conceive man as an organism ideally dependent not on direct contact with nature and with other persons, but rather on institutions, their services, and products and goods. This institutionalization of substantive value, this belief that escalation of treatment by an institution ultimately does give results by making better human beings, leads to a deep interiorization of the consumer ethos. The great national and international programs for this decade, from the Poverty Act to the Pearson Report, do only sustain this trend. They start from the assumption that man is poor and sick and ignorant because he lacks institutional services which may make him rich and healthy and knowledgeable. This was spoken in late 1970. Illich was then in vogue. He lectured widely. His articles appeared in the pages of the New York Review of Books and the Saturday Review. He was profiled in The New Yorker and featured by CBC television programs like Take 30 and Man Alive. His theme was the one he discussed at our teach-in, the institutionalization of values. He spoke against compulsory schooling. I haven't seen anybody who has learned something which was of real value under compulsion. Only people who want to learn, do learn, and they learn at minimal cost, and they learn by themselves, because it is really an alienation to believe that learning is the result of teaching. He called for a revolution, not political, but cultural. I've said that I call a political revolution. 
the attempt to take over control over existing institutions without any real thought of a radical change. I call a cultural revolution one in which people develop a new structure of their demands, in which for them education does not mean any more schooling, in which better health does not mean necessarily access to more hours in a hospital, in which desirable mobility ceases to mean maximum speed in comfortable kind of rolling homes. He claimed this revolution was within the grasp of everyone right now. The deinstitutionalization of values is primarily the result of personal decision. I would rather speak about it as conversion. The decision to seek pleasure in leisure and conviviality rather than from production and consumption. And he prophesied catastrophe if this revolution should fail. If mankind cannot accept limits, disaster will set in within the next generation on a rather gruesome level. It's amazing what kind of ability people have to defend themselves from looking at the facts which are available by now also in encyclopedias. You don't have to have access to modern research papers. The upper limits calculated by bureaucrats stake out disaster. Prophesying, provoking, sometimes mocking, always clarifying critical distinctions, Illich shaped an agenda for cultural revolution, which he and many others tried and are still trying to live. But gradually he tired of campaigning. He began to feel, he said, like a jukebox. Press C9 and you got de-schooling society. B6 was medical nemesis. He closed the center in Cuernavaca, Mexico, where he had lived and worked for 15 years, and traveled new roads. He resumed the studies in medieval history, which had fascinated and delighted him as a young man. His critique of institutions became a study of the historical conditions under which those institutions could arise in the first place. His long-standing interest in technology shifted from what tools do to a society to what they say to it. This question of what technology says to people about who they are is his preoccupation in his latest book, which he co-wrote with his friend Barry Sanders. Called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Popular Mind, it examines the ways in which textual literacy has shaped self-perception in Western culture and the ways in which people are now reshaping themselves in the image of the computer. It was this study that brought Illich to Toronto a couple of years ago to address a conference on orality and literacy, which I was covering for ideas. I had been following his writings with keen interest, and I took the occasion of our meeting again to propose that we record a series of conversations for ideas. It had been 15 years, he said, since he had allowed any interviews. But eventually he agreed, and last September I spent a week with him in State College, Pennsylvania, where he now teaches for part of the year at Penn State University. Our conversations ranged over the whole of his published work and public career. Tonight, and for the rest of this week, you'll hear excerpts from these conversations and comments from Illich's friends and associates. Ivan Illich was born in Vienna 
1926. His father was a diplomat from an aristocratic family whose home on an island in Dalmatia off the coast of what is today Yugoslavia dated back to the time of the Crusades. His mother's family were Jews who had settled in Vienna. He grew up between the homes of his grandparents and wherever his parents happened to be at the time. Then came Hitler and the eventual incorporation of Austria into Germany. During the late 30s, my place of ordinary residence was the house of grandfather in Vienna, where I got stuck as a half-Aryan with uh, diplomatic protection, which my, being the son of my father afforded, to protect my Jewish grandfather until he died of a natural death in his own house in 41. At that time, I had ceased to be a half-Aryan and had become a half-Jew, according to the law. And we had, had to grow underground, more or less, slip out of then already Germany. And uh, I spent, from, from the age of uh, 15 on, mainly in Italy, in Florence and Rome. With your parents? Well, my father was dead by then, yeah. and I took care of my mother and we, my two smaller brothers who are twins who stayed in Florence. In Florence, Illich enrolled at the university, where he studied chemistry. After the war, he obtained a PhD in history at the University of Salzburg and studied philosophy and theology at the Gregorian University in Rome, where he prepared for the priesthood. There he met a man who was to become both his mentor and his friend, the French Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain. Maritain entered. Quite early in my life, he became very important for me while he was ambassador in Rome and had a little seminar there. He made me go back to another great friend whom I acquired, in a way, as a friend only through him, Aquinas, because this Gothic approach, both narrow and precise and extraordinarily illuminating, which he had to the texts of St. Thomas, laid the Thomistic foundations of my entire perceptual mode. Uh, I don't know if uh, I submit myself to the judgment of Thomists. They would accept uh -huh. this, but I experience Thomism, no, not Thomism, Thomas, as I discovered him through Jacques Maritain as the architecture which has made me intellectually free to move between Hugh of St. Victor and Freud and again to Orientals or into a world of Islam without getting dispersed. Why did you move to the United States? I wanted to get away from Rome. I didn't want to get into papal bureaucracy, so I thought I'll do a postdoctoral thesis, you know what they call a habilitation in German universities, on alchemy in Albert the Great. There are some very good documents in Princeton, but then on the first day in New York, literally the first evening with some friends of my grandfather, 
I heard about Puerto Ricans. These people telling me we have to move out because all these people are moving in here. And then the black cook saying about her family, old southern blacks, we have to move out of Harlem because when Puerto Ricans are coming in. So I spent the next two days up in the barrio beneath the tracks of New York Central where they had their market. And afterwards went to Colonel Spellman's office and asked an assignment to a Puerto Rican parish. And that's how I got stuck in New York. Illich's sudden fascination with the Puerto Ricans was to shape the whole subsequent direction of his life. The Puerto Rican migration to New York was then in full spate. An incarnation parish, to which Illich was assigned by Cardinal Spellman, was one of the areas whose character was rapidly changing. The older immigrant populations, the Irish, the Italians, and the Jews, were reacting to the Puerto Ricans with the same prejudice which they had formerly experienced. Illich was one of a group of young priests who tried to make the church and other local institutions sensitive to Puerto Rican culture. Another was Father Joseph Fitzpatrick, whose lifelong friendship with Illich began in those years. Father Fitzpatrick is a professor emeritus of sociology at Fordham University, and he has written a history of the Puerto Rican migration. He says that as soon as Illich arrived in Incarnation Parish, he began to try to make the Puerto Ricans feel at home. He went to the neighborhood library. Now, you'll, you'll notice the, uh, the way this man operated. He went to the library and he asked the librarian what kind of books she had in the library for children who read Spanish. And she said, well, we don't have any. And he said, well, look, uh, the neighborhood is becoming Puerto Rican, and uh, you simply have to get books that they're going to be able to read and things that they will enjoy. So um, he began to work with her in building up at the library a whole array of books in Spanish that children would be able to read. And it became, again, another center where the children could gather. And this was years before even the public schools began to respond to this kind of a need of the Puerto Rican uh, children. How was he regarded uh, in the Puerto Rican community, both in Incarnation Parish and perhaps as time went by in the city more generally? Oh, he was profoundly revered. He became an outstanding figure. The parish, the people in the parish just loved him. And uh, the thing that they always remarked was the devotion with which he said his mass. Uh, They were most impressed at the evidences of great devotion at his mass. And uh, secondly, you know, he was very much involved in their lives uh, in a way in which uh, very few, uh, I would say, very few priests were involved in their lives at that particular time. With the support of Cardinal Spellman, Illich worked tirelessly to integrate the Puerto Ricans into the American church. He urged celebration of their national festival, the Fiesta of San Juan, just as the Irish had their St. Patrick's Day. Masses for the feast day of San Juan were instituted in the cathedral. He was still not satisfied. Illich said, this is ridiculous. You don't have a San Juan fiesta in the cathedral. This has to be an outdoor celebration. So in 1956, we transferred it to the campus of Fordham University 
and it became an extraordinary event. There was a beautiful mass that the cardinal said and a procession and so on, and there were 30,000 people on the Fordham campus that day, and it was the first time in the experience of Puerto Ricans that the Puerto Rican community in New York really felt at home. It was quite a remarkable and impressive event. Illich remained in New York for five years. By that time, Cardinal Spellman had already made him the youngest Monsignor in his archdiocese. Then, in 1956, at the age of 30, he was offered the position of vice-rector of the Catholic University at Ponce in Puerto Rico. This, this raised a big question in the mind of Illich and the rest of us. Uh, should he go to Puerto Rico and take that job? We knew that the Hispanic world was going to come to the United States. The largest, the, the most rapidly increasing Catholic population in the world was in Latin America. We saw the need for some kind of a bridge or a link between the Latin world and the United States. And uh, we began to think that Puerto Rico would be the ideal bridge, and Illich would be the ideal person to carry that off. So as a result, uh, he told Spellman, he said, all right, I'll be willing to go down and uh, we'll start the Institute of Intercultural Communication and uh, we'll begin a process of linking together Latin America and North America through Puerto Rico. I felt very much attracted to Puerto Rico. It's the only place in the world, because you asked me where my home is, where I would have said to other people, yes, here in Puerto Rico we, I never would say we Puerto Ricans, but here in Puerto Rico we, I would never say that in the United States or in Göttingen or, or in Marburg or in Mexico or anywhere else, yeah. I would say here people do this. But in Puerto Rico, I said, here in Puerto Rico, we wouldn't do that. In Puerto Rico, Illich established his institute for the training of American priests and religious. Its primary purpose was to teach Spanish and to teach it always with a certain awe at what is actually involved in learning a new language. Properly conducted language learning, Illich later wrote in an essay called The Eloquence of Silence, is one of the few occasions in which an adult can go through a deep experience of poverty, of weakness, and of dependence on the goodwill of another. Lee Hoynatsky, later a close friend of Illich's, then a young priest in New York, was one of the Institute's students. He was struck both by Illich's efficiency as an administrator and by the importance he gave to this experience of silence. The silence one feels coming to a new language and not being able to say something. And with, with Illich, he took off from this experience, in a sense, to live in a kind of silence before, you might say, what is, a kind of metaphysical silence, a kind of spiritual silence, a kind of silence that uh, one sees, for example, in the Fathers of the Desert. On the one hand, there was this great efficiency and this running around and, and this attention to details of how one learns a language. And then on the other hand, this complete non-activity. And it was a whole matter of being 
silent before another person in another culture, someone really strange, that this experience of strangeness, when it's obvious in, in a different culture with a different people, leads to the experience of strangeness before the obvious. Seeing the obvious is strange. Illich's years in Puerto Rico brought him into contact for the first time with that great modern secular bureaucracy whose pretensions he would one day puncture, the school system. He sat on the board which governed the island's entire educational establishment, and he was exposed to a new and puzzling vocabulary with terms like development, human resources, manpower planning. So, on a visit to New York, he took his perplexity and unease with these terms to his friend Jacques Maritain, then at Princeton. I went to Jacques, whose imaginative Thomism meant very much for me. He was an old man already, with a face, as Anne Fremantle once said, cut out from a stained glass window in Chartres. And I was sitting there with him, must have been 57, he had a teacup in his hand and was shaking when I talked to him about the question, which bothered me that in his whole philosophy I didn't find any access to the concept of planning. And he asked me if this was a different, an English word for accounting. I told him no. And if it was for engineering, I said no. And then at a certain moment he said to me, Ah, je comprends, mon cher ami, maintenant je comprends. Now I finally understand. C'est une nouvelle espèce du péché de présomption. It's a new species of the sin of presumption, planning. <laughs> the idea of planning as presumption or pride, as a way of defending ourselves against surprise and against dependence on others, would be central to Illich's later analyses of all modern systems. At that point, he was just beginning to understand what a school system is. He met a sympathetic American called Everett Reimer, who was then working for the governor, Luis Munoz Marin, and they began a conversation which would lead to the ideas which Illich eventually published as de-schooling society. It was thanks to years of conversation with Everett that I came to understand what this educational system of Puerto Rico was doing. But I first had also to read my way into the pragmatist and empiricist English tradition of thinkers and philosophers. Second, to ask myself, what do schools do when I put into parentheses their claim to educate? And thereby was led to a conclusion about the schools in Puerto Rico. Thank God I had the opportunity to ask for data. Mm -hmm. They had then a machine which was called a computer. It had nothing to do with what you see around now, but it already could gobble up so-called data and organize them. When I looked at the printouts they gave me, it was quite evident that after 10 years of intensive, another one of these words, development of the school system, 
in the country which at that moment was the showcase for development together with Israel around the whole world in Puerto Rico. Schooling was so arranged that that half of the students who came from the poorer families had a one in three chance to finish five years of elementary education which were compulsory. Nobody faced the fact that schooling served, at least in Puerto Rico, to compound the native poverty of that half of children with a new interiorized sense of guilt for not having made it. I therefore came to the conclusion that schools inevitably are a system to produce dropouts, to produce more dropouts than successes, because since the school is open to 16 years, 18 years, 19 years of schooling, it never closes the door on anybody. A few successes and a majority of failure. Failure, that school really acted as a lottery system in which those who didn't make it didn't just lose what they had paid in, but for their life was were stigmatized as inferior. As Illich grew increasingly curious about schooling, he began to draw on his own background in ecclesiology, the study of the church as an institution, and in liturgy, the ritual which creates the church. And he began to feel that people's irrational allegiance to schooling, held against the evidence of what it actually does, could only be explained by viewing school as a kind of secular church. I began to engage in a phenomenology of schooling. I had first to ask myself, what am I studying? I am not studying quite definitely. What other people told me this was, namely, the most practical arrangement of imparting education or of creating equality, because I saw that most of the people were stupefied by this procedure, were actually told that they couldn't learn on their own, became disabled and crippled. And second, I had the evidence that it promoted a new kind of self-inflicted injustice. So I came to the conclusion that this was a myth-making, a mythopoietic ritual. Max Gluckman was my hero at that time, says rituals are forms of behavior which make those who participate in them blind to the discrepancy which exists between the purpose for which you perform the rain dance and the actual social consequences which the rain dance has. If the rain dance doesn't work, you can blame yourself for having danced it wrongly. Schooling and increasingly came to see as the ritual of a society committed to progress and development, creating certain myths which are a requirement for a consumer society. For instance, making you believe that learning can be quantified, learning can be sliced up into pieces and can become additive, that learning is something for which you need a process within which you acquire it, that in this process you are the consumer and somebody else organizes 
the production of the thing which you consume and interiorize, which, which is all basic for being a modern man, for living in the absurdities of the modern world. Illich's studies of schooling would continue for many years. But in 1960, politics put an abrupt end to his career in Puerto Rico. In the election that year, the Catholic hierarchy on the island made an issue of birth control, which had been supported by the progressive government of Munoz. Illich felt compelled to intervene. The two Irish Catholic bishops had gotten themselves into politics by threatening excommunication for anybody who would vote for a party, for any party, which wouldn't proscribe the sale of condoms in drugstores. This, around a, a month before the nomination of the first Catholic to the candidacy of the Democratic Party, Kennedy. It was not that I wanted to, to support Kennedy. I felt that it was highly unsound to allow the religious issue to creep back into American politics because the only place where two American Catholic bishops had an absolute Catholic majority, in theory at least, as we are subjects, mm -hmm. they would intervene in this form in politics, especially when in that they, when they simultaneously with assistance from the papal nuncio responsible for the area, had sponsored the creation of a Christian democratic-like party on the island. So I felt that I had to do something, since most people didn't take it serious. And those people who took it serious didn't want to intervene. I attracted to myself the full odium of exploding that situation and knew that I sacrificed my possibility for many years to, to do anything publicly in Puerto Rico without being mixed up with the memories of that political intervention. Because he got into the controversy in the election in Puerto Rico in 60, Bishop McManus told him to leave the island. By that time, we had realized that Puerto Rico could not do what we wanted because the people in Latin America saw it as a little gringo land so we wanted to get to a place that was more deeply into South America. And Illich went to Mexico and set up this institute at uh, Cuernavaca. That's where the dialogue with Latin America started. Far more exciting and far more uh, alive than anything we had in Puerto Rico. The new institute at Cuernavaca was called the Center for Intercultural Documentation, or CDOC and it eventually comprised a language school, a library, a publishing arm, and a sort of free university. It was established in 1961, the same year as John Kennedy unveiled his Alliance for Progress, an ambitious development assistance program for Latin America, the same year as Pope John XXIII called on the North American Church to send fully 10% of its strength to Latin America as missionaries, and the same year as the Peace Corps was created. The development decade was beginning, and Illich set up his center with the explicit purpose of subverting it. He ridiculed the Peace Corps, called the Alliance for Progress an alliance for the progress of the middle classes, 
and sowed doubt in the minds of the missionaries who came to him to learn Spanish. I wanted to look at what volunteers did, volunteers in development, mm -hmm. in a completely different light. I asked myself, what happens when not the average bureaucratic uh, little uh, puppet, as most of these missionaries and papal volunteers and Peace Corps people were, is sent to Peru, people who just seek experience, avoid the draft, look for adventure. But when we serious, the good ones, the responsible ones get there. They come into a village, admirable for everybody, live, try to live like the people. Four or five wells are dug. After three years, the guy goes home. Very few people stayed three years in the same place. Mm -hmm. Something like 5% of all, that whole vol yeah. lay volunteer gang. Everybody remembers Johnny or Catherine with whimsical pleasure. But everybody also learns that for digging wells, he knew how to do it because he had gone to Harvard. Therefore, the volunteer becomes a demonstration model for high levels of service consumption when you send him to Latin America. I, I, I wanted to point out the damage in volunteerism, damage to the person who goes there, sense of superiority, establishment of the savior complex to the people down there and to the image of what poor countries are in the United States. An image now not only dependent on journalists, but on people who claim that they report much more, with much more knowledge of local situations in the light of these people needing us. During the years of his campaigns against development, Illich traveled widely in Latin America. A sort of sister center to CEDOC was established at Petropolis in Brazil. Illich's tutor in things Brazilian was the Archbishop of Recife, Dom Elder Camara, through their friendship, Illich felt at first hand the violence of Brazilian society in the years after the military coup in 1964. Camara was a man who radiated a sweet and simple goodness, but he was considered dangerous by the military regime, and the dead and horribly tortured body of his closest associate had already been dumped on his doorstep. He lived in a little sacristy in a suburb of Recife. He had given the Palacio do Arcebispo, Archbishop's Palace, for some social activities. He lived in a little room. We shared the same room, uh, two big enough for two uh, hammocks hung crosswise. <laughs> and I arrived at six o'clock, six twenty. He went to the door. Twenty minutes later, same story. Say, what is this? He says to me, Ivan, what's the way menu? You look at it tomorrow. And I saw that this street, in the evenings and well into the morning hours, was crawling 
with extraordinary ugly cripples. Two days later I said to him, Elder, tell me, what is this? He says to me, prisoners were let go from various places and brought here to knock at my door. Two already have told me, sooner or later I will not be satisfied with what you give me and I'll kill you. And Elder looked at me and said, Deus God is great. In spite of all his foolishness and his statements, which I couldn't agree with, less on, on, on liberation and, uh, and such stuff, Elder is for me one of the great examples one can emulate. Illich did emulate Elder Kamara. Sidok, as a center of radical thought, also became a magnet for the violence of the Catholic Rite in Mexico. Illich refused to acknowledge his enemies. I take it for granted that people know that during the later 60s and well into the early 70s, uh, we had some at Sidok in Cuernavaca, a lot of. Uh, violent attempts. I never heard this. And, well, no, no need of this. I mean, that's for historians, not for... Not for uh, I mean, the, the reason why everybody very healthily survived it, because I always insisted on discipline with the, my collaborators. We have no ideas who hates us. We know who are our friends. Never think about who might want to do something evil to you. If you go under, too bad for you. Nobody went under. The people who defined us as some sort of enemy usually knew nothing about what we were really doing. Lee Hoynatsky, then Illich's assistant at CDOC. There were these illusions people had about what was going on there. And people seemed to operate in terms of those illusions in their estimation of us and in their action against us. And we saw that right off. Therefore, there wasn't any possibility of defense. And, and as far as I know, Ivan never really tried to defend himself. Why? What was the point? How could you defend yourself against illusions? So uh, we tended to ignore them. And because within the church, Ivan had friends, and within the Mexican government, he had good contacts, ecclesiastical and civil authorities who didn't like us couldn't move against us. Their, their moves were blocked. Illich had his friends and the patronage of Cardinal Spellman, but he was becoming a more and more controversial figure in the Catholic Church. Since he had left parish work and gone to Puerto Rico in 1956, he had tried, on principle, never to confuse his roles as priest and public man. But he was still Monsignor Illich, and his demands on his church were radical. In articles like The Vanishing Clergyman and The Powerless Church, later collected in a volume called Celebration of Awareness, he asked for nothing less than the deinstitutionalization of the church. He had attacked the church's missionary efforts in Latin America, and he had withdrawn from his role at the Vatican Council in protest over its political timidity. During the Vatican Council, a man whom people then knew 
Sunens was his name. He was Cardinal of Malin Bruxelles. And the Pope asked him to be the president of a group of four cardinals to moderate the council. Miss Sunens had known me through a variety of circumstances much, much earlier and asked me to come to Rome as one of the direct advisors of this committee. We met every day for the second and third session. I remember one morning I went to I asked him if we could have a cup of coffee together, Cardinal Sunens, up there at Quattro Fontane, where he was staying in a little Belgian college. And I said to him, I'm leaving now. Since yesterday you proved to me that this council is incapable of facing the issues which count while trying hard to remain traditional. The day before, in the Ola of St. Peter's, the bishops had kind of accepted the fact that the document which would come out on church and world would say that the church cannot as yet condemn that governments keep atomic bombs for the moment. That is, that they keep genocide tools. It was a wise decision, world-wise. And I left him with a little caricature which somebody had drawn up for me. In that caricature you see five popes with their characteristic noses, one behind the other, pointing with one finger at two objects standing there. An already slightly flaccid penis with a condom filled with semen hanging on it and an atomic rocket ready for takeoff and the balloon saying it's against nature. I am proud to have been and to be associated and loyal to an, an agency, a worldly agency, a worldly agency which still has the courage to say even today it's against nature. The finger might be pointing at the wrong object. Illich's reading of this image exactly captures his relationship to the church. He was deeply loyal and deeply imbued with the church's tradition, but he believed that the church was failing to take the radical stand implied by the Gospels, and he never wavered from this view. His superior, Cardinal Spellman, had respected this implacable integrity and defended Illich from the intrigues mounted against him. But in late 1967, Spellman died, and a few months later, Illich was summoned to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Holy Office, in Rome. There he was confronted with an anonymous and tendentious questionnaire, full of rumor and innuendo. It inquired about everything from his relations with Octavio Paz to his views on limbo. Since he was being asked, in effect, whether he had stopped beating his wife, Illich refused to answer. He returned to Cuernavaca and said nothing about what had happened in Rome. 
there the matter might have ended. Illich had sinned in neither faith nor morals, and his theological views, as he had always insisted, were orthodox, even conservative. Nevertheless, six months later, says Father Joseph Fitzpatrick, Rome moved against Illich again. Because he had not answered the accusations and so on, and had kind of embarrassed the, uh, the office of uh, the faith, they uh, put an interdict on his center. They uh, supposedly sent information to bishops and religious superiors that they were not to send their subjects to Cuernavaca to uh, the courses or the programs that were available there. I received formal documents from the Roman Curia, which is a historian, I knew because I had the other documents too, were cribbed from CIA reports, leaked to the Holy See. I said, well, you make a scandal out of me. I will not ever again, in any way, engage in any action which the Roman Catholic Church considers as that of a priest. I refuse any privilege and any, and any duties within the liturgical system of the Roman Church, and much more within the administrative clerical system of that church. Destiny has brought me into a situation where I can't. Illich wrote to the Holy See, to Rome, and he said, uh, I am placing myself in a state of voluntary suspension, and from now on I will no longer exercise my priestly ministry publicly, period. End quotes. And that is his status until the present time. He has never resigned from the priesthood. He's never been expelled from the priesthood. He is still a very devout uh, Catholic, and uh, whenever I'm with him, we pray together. He comes to my Mass, and uh, we frequently say parts of the office together. But he will never, as far as I can see, return to the uh, exercise of his priestly ministry. Today, Illich's views on the Church are very close to those he expressed to Cardinal Sunans 25 years ago. He still thinks that the life of Jesus displays, above all else, a conscientious refusal of power. He believes that in the face of things like nuclear weapons and genetic engineering, the Church's tradition requires something more than reasoned arguments. It requires an absolute no, a questioning of the very foundations of modern life, not merely calling, as the Catholic bishops have done, for a just economics, but questioning the very idea of economics as a way of understanding the world. I wish I could serve the Roman Catholic Church to think through and express those things which cannot be discussed where majorities count. It's not a question of democracy, it's not a question of committee decisions. It's a question of witness. The Canadian bishops, the US bishops, made very interesting statements about the economy. We are certainly of a higher level of, of decency and intelligence than this absolutely crawling statement by the Pope about solicitudo re socialis, where he slaps evangelical words, sentences, on the assumptions of modern development economics. Uh, certainly, these, 
there's some very intelligent popular education about rethinking economic issues. What I would expect to come from the message of the gospel is thinking by people who find in their tradition the strength to look the spirit of independence of what the bishops in Canada take for granted. Mm -hmm. Namely that economy runs our lives. By definition, by the methods by which we have to be arrived at, they can't assume the moral stance which corresponds to the vocation implied in the gospel. This is a time for martyrdom. This is not a time for, uh, for, for, for solemn committee statements. Next week on Ideas, we'll continue with our profile of Ivan Illich, examining his writing of the 70s from de-schooling society to disabling professions, and his reflections on those writings today. Tonight's program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations by Lorne Tulk, production assistants Brian Hickey and Gail Brownell, archival research Ken Pewley, producer Jill Eisen. We have Ivan Illich's permission to offer our listeners a printed transcript of this five-part series. Send a cheque or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Illich, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. We also have a free reading list, and you can get that by writing to Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. Tomorrow night, join me for the Court of Ideas. Did the Ides of March save constitutional government in Rome from a dictator? Accused of murder, Brutus pleads justifiable homicide. That's the Court of Ideas, Julius Caesar, tomorrow night. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Locht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Mm.